So as we've been working our way through Acts, if you remember, when Jesus ascended, he told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he said even to the remotest parts of the earth. And we've sort of seen that play out as we go through the book of Acts so far. If you remember, it all started in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Much of what we've studied so far, in fact, most of what we've studied so far has involved primarily Jews in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, which is exactly what Jesus said would take place. It's exactly how he laid it out. Now, we've kind of gotten a glimpse before our passage today of God's plan for the Gentiles. You remember that... um, Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. We believe he was a Gentile. Um, we have the conversion of Saul. Now, they, now he obviously was a Jew, but when Jesus saw him on his, I say a horse, because I assume he probably traveled on a horse, but when Jesus knocked him off his horse onto the ground, he told him, you're going to be my witness, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. That was another glimpse. And then we have Peter's encounter with Cornelius. We saw that. So we got these little glimpses, these hints of where Luke was ultimately going to take us in the, God, or in the book of Acts. Today we see those glimpses kind of come to fruition as we see the full inclusion of the Gentiles in the body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that because I'm a Gentile through and through. I don't know that I've got any Jewish blood coursing through my veins at all. So had it not been for God, including the Gentiles, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. In fact, most of us wouldn't be. Because it's not an exclusive club, at least not from the perspective of ethnicity. So we're going to look at this passage today because we sort of now have completed the transition from, I'll say, the first phase, if you will. Um, We see how even Paul himself, as he addresses um, his audiences as he travels, he always started with Jews first and then would go to the Gentiles. And we've seen that take place in the book of Acts. But now we're sort of fully transitioning into the ministry to the Gentiles. So we're going to break this passage down today. We're in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse, um, I'm going to start at verse 19. But we're going to see the first point of our passage today is we're going to see large numbers of Gentiles actually added to the church. So this is really, um, it's been little glimpses up until this point. You know, Ethiopian eunuch here and Cornelius and his family there. But all of a sudden now it just sort of, sort of explodes to the Gentiles. So let's look at verses 19 through, 19 through 21. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed Turn to the Lord. So Luke begins with this reflection back on the persecution that began under Saul. You remember that? Saul basically had a mission to destroy the church, and he began to go house to house in Jerusalem, and as a result, they were all spread. In fact, turn back to Acts chapter 8, just the first few verses. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Saul was in hearty agreement with the putting of Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. 
Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So, the Christians were forced out of Jerusalem, went into what's called the Diaspora, the area outside of Jerusalem. Some, like Philip, went down to Samaria and Judea and began to preach. Luke tells us that others went into Phoenicia, which is the coastal region along the Mediterranean Sea. Some went to Cyprus, which is a, an island out in the Mediterranean Sea. Some even went further down to a place called Antioch, which we're going to see today. That's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And then some even went to a place called Cyrene, which was 800 miles away. Now think about today. I mean, we just got back from Green Bay by van, driving on an interstate. Still took us 10 hours to get from here up to Green Bay. That was 550 miles. Imagine having to go 800 miles by foot back in the day. That's a long journey, and yet that's as far away as some of them went when they were scattered out of their homes in Jerusalem. It's actually in what's called modern-day Libya today. It's quite a ways away from Jerusalem. Now Luke tells us that these people, as they were scattered tells us that one of the blessings was that they continued to preach the gospel wherever they went. So think about that for a moment. They're pushed out of Jerusalem. They lose their homes. They lose their property. They lose probably many of their possessions because you can't take a whole lot with you when you're traveling by foot. Because you're a Christian. And what do you do when you arrive at a new location? Start preaching the gospel. Pretty crazy, isn't it? But that's what these people did. Now, the one thing that we see here is, according to Luke, verse 19, most of them were Jews. There might have been some Greek converts there, but most of them would have been Jews. And it says that they went about really only preaching to other Jews. And we can't fault them for that. That's their culture. We remember how Peter, when he went to Cornelius' family, when he walked in the room and he saw all the Jews there, he said what to them? It's like, you guys realize uh, I really shouldn't be here? This is considered unlawful for me to be hanging out with you Gentiles. So the culture, the paradigm, if you remember, was that Gentiles were unclean, they were dirty, they could defile a Jew, which then many was, he meant he, he couldn't go stand before the Lord. And so it makes sense that they only went and preached to other Jews. But they did. That's one of the blessings of the persecution. So God used it to expand his church into other areas. So they spent most of that time preaching to other Gentiles, I'm sorry, other Jews. There were some, however, we're told in the text today, happens to be a group of men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we're told, who went to Antioch and began to preach the gospel specifically to Gentiles. Many mistakenly assume that the Apostle Paul sort of began the outreach to Gentiles. But that's not necessarily true. Now, we know Paul went to Tarsus. He's been in Tarsus for a while. That's a primarily Gentile area. But we don't know who Paul was preaching to, Jews or Gentiles. may have been a mix of both. I suspect it was probably mostly Jews at that time. But we also saw that Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw Peter and his efforts with Cornelius' family. But this idea that Paul was sort of the first evangelist to the Gentiles and that it all sort of began with him really isn't true because we have these men of Cyrene who took it upon themselves to specifically go and to preach to Gentiles. And they went specifically to Antioch. And that's where we find them today. 
Look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and large numbers who believed turned to the Lord. That's referring specifically to Gentiles. And so what we really have is prior to Paul, these men who were likely, they may have been Gentile converts, we're not really sure, doesn't tell us a whole lot about them, but they basically went to Antioch from their hometown, apparently of their own initiative, specifically to reach Gentiles. I find that fascinating because everybody else is sticking with the Jews. And so we have the first outreach, formal outreach to Gentiles by these unknown men from Cyprus and Cyrene that go to Antioch and they have a tremendous ministry specifically around Gentiles. It's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing I can think of. Now, one thing that's not immediately apparent in this context here is the importance of Antioch. Why did they go to Antioch? There are two cities named Antioch in the New Testament. Syrian Antioch and then Pisidia Antioch. This one is the one located in Syria. It's the biggest one. It happened to be the capital city of the Roman province of Syria and Phoenicia. Had a population of almost half a million people. That was a big city during his day. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The only other was Rome in Italy, and then Alexandria in Egypt. So this is really the hub. This was the capital city of the Roman Empire. It was a major seaport trading hub. People would come in and out from all over the world. Different cultures and different religions would all traffic through Antioch. The population was mostly Greek, but it also had a fairly large population of Jewish people. In fact, it was the second largest population of Jewish people outside of Jerusalem. Hmm, A little strategic, especially considering that along with many of those Jews, there was also a fairly large, what we call God-fearing population of Greeks in Antioch. It's basically Jewish converts. Antioch is actually referred to as the cradle of Christianity. It's interesting, why not Jerusalem? Jerusalem was important, obviously. But many refer to Antioch as the cradle of Christianity because it really is ultimately where the Gentile church got its start. And from there, it spread. In fact, Antioch became the headquarters for Paul and Barnabas. It's where they started and ended their missionary journeys. In fact, it was the Antioch church that set Paul and Barnabas aside and sent them out on their missionary journeys. I don't think there's any coincidence that Antioch happened to be where God started all of this. Probably the most important Gentile city in all of the Roman Empire. Had all the resources necessary. It's a port. People coming in and out. It's already got an establishment of Jews, which is oftentimes where they started. We oftentimes see that in some cities, Jews and Gentiles would come to Christ alike. Now, it's fair to say, I believe, that the church at Antioch became as important, if not more important, than the church at Jerusalem. In fact, considering that the church today is made up of many more Gentiles than Jews kind of explains maybe why that Antioch Church sort of became the center, the cradle of Christianity in all of the world. So what's our takeaway from something like this? 
I think it's pretty simple. This is the beginning of the Lord fulfilling what he promised in taking the gospel to the nations. Remember, he told Abraham that all nations will be blessed in you. This is the beginning of that. Again, the other things we've seen with the Ethiopian eunuch and and Cornelius, those were foreshadowings of what God was going to do. It was Luke's way of sort of transitioning us from Gentile and from from Samaria and and, uh, Jerusalem and Judea into the rest of the world. And so what we see here, the takeaway here, is this is the beginning of the Lord doing exactly what he promised, which was, I'm going to take this to the nations. We're going to bless all the nations through you. In fact, Psalm chapter 89, or 86, verse 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. That was God's plan from the very beginning. Many see this disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like, oh, the Old Testament is all about Israel. The New Testament is all about Gentiles. Oh, you know, the Old Testament is all about the law. The New Testament is all about grace. Oh, the church, you know what? Old Testament, Israel was just obedient and God abandoned them. And so then you get to the New Testament, God's new plan. It's all about the Gentile church now. He's, Gentiles have replaced the Jews and the church has replaced Israel. But it's not that way at all. It's one, as Dave Malin one time commented, it's all one big story. God promised that he would save the world, all nations, through his promises to Israel. And we see that today, and so I think as we look at this, we see the beginning of the Lord fulfilling His promises to the Gentile world. All of us sitting here today wouldn't be here today if it weren't for what took place in Antioch. Let's move on. Let's look at verse 22. It says, The news about them, these converts... I'm sorry about the um, people, these men preaching to the Greeks in Antioch. And it says, verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began encouraging them, or began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So when word got back to Jerusalem about what was happening in Antioch, about these men taking the gospel of the Gentiles, and about the Gentiles actually coming to Christ, they get wind of it. So what do they do? They send Barnabas. Now what's interesting to me about this is when we we saw something similar happen in Acts chapter 8. You remember when the Samaritans started coming to Christ, the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John down there. Two apostles, likely to investigate, well, what's going on here? Because remember, that was out of the norm. They didn't expect Samaritans to be part of God's plan, because Jews, it was exclusive. So they get wind of this, what's going on down there. So they send Peter down there. You need to go investigate. Peter goes down, sees it firsthand for himself, but they also send Peter down to then pray for them. Because if it's legit, he's going to pray for them, they all receive the Holy Spirit. So it's, in some respects, investigative. Um, We see something a little bit different here, though. When the apostles and others in Jerusalem learn about what's happening down at Antioch, they don't send an apostle, per se. They don't send one of the twelve. Who do they send? Barnabas. What do we know about Barnabas? 
Well, his real name, I believe, was Joseph. But they called him Barnabas. Remember what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. You remember when Paul got, or when Saul was saved, none of the apostles would hang out with him. All the disciples would scatter when he showed up in Jerusalem. Who was the one that went to see Paul, or Saul at the time? It was Barnabas. Sat with him, talked with him, listened. He then went to the apostles and basically vouched for Saul, the sworn enemy of the church. Why? Because he was a son of encouragement. He was Barnabas. And so they send Barnabas down to Antioch rather than another apostle. Now Barnabas will be called an apostle later, but in a general sense of one who's sent out. But remember, he wasn't one of the, the official certified apostles, leaders of the church at Jerusalem. And I think that's critical here because I believe what they were doing here was they got wind of what the Lord was doing and so they sent the man who could encourage them. Sent the man down who could encourage them. And that's exactly what we do. Let's go back and look at verse 23 again. It says, When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God, meaning God's favor to the Gentiles. And what did he do? Well, first thing is, he rejoiced. We would expect that of him. We're going to see a little bit later on that some of the Jews still had some problems. They weren't really rejoicing. They were more perplexed. They thought, well, okay, we understand God's doing something here, but they better be like Jews. They better behave like Jews. They better act. We better make sure they obey the law. Then we're okay to let them into the club. Barnabas just starts to rejoice. He's all in. I would assume that was the same when he saw Paul the first time. And Paul was explaining to him, yeah, man, I was out there persecuting the church and I saw the Lord. Here's what he told me. Boom, boom, boom. I would imagine Barnabas rejoiced. We see that here. But the second thing he does, we're told, is that he began to encourage them, it says, all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So he witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced with them. And then he began to encourage them. Basically, what it means there is that he encouraged them to remain faithful with all of their hearts. It's another way of rendering that. He basically said, man, now that you're saved, stay in there. Continue with all of your heart. Maybe the reason he did that was because he knew what was coming. He knew what happened in Jerusalem. He had likely been told what Jesus had said to the church about they'll persecute you because they persecuted me. They'll hate you because they hate me. And so he encourages them, stay true with all of your heart. He also likely understood what God always said in the Old Testament. It's not about the law. Just love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. He knew what it meant to follow the Lord. And so he encourages them to do just that. The reason we're told... He was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What's our takeaway from this? You know, we're all one body of Christ, and I love the fact here that you have these Jews in Jerusalem who send their encourager, Barnabas, 
down to encourage the church, especially knowing what we're going to see in the future here. There are still some Jews that are struggling with what do we do with these Gentiles? But it's pretty clear in this context that they sent Barnabas down to encourage them. Have you ever found yourself knowing you need to encourage somebody else when maybe they're not somebody you warm up to? Or maybe they're not somebody like you. You know, we all have a tendency, those that we like, those who are just like us, it's real easy to encourage them. It's real easy to welcome them. It's real easy to care for them. And But then there are those that maybe annoy you or aren't like you or you're a little bit uncomfortable around, but yet the Lord tells us they're part of the body of Christ and we're to encourage them. I think we see that here. We're all part of one body, the body of Christ and We should be encouraging others, those who aren't like us. Maybe they're a little bit different. You know, I'm I'm struck sometimes on how Americanized we are when it comes to the church and the gospel. We think this is the way every believer ought to behave, how every believer ought to worship, how every believer ought to think. So we maybe go to another place and maybe they do it a little bit differently than us and we feel a little bit awkward. Now, certainly, that should be the case if what they're doing is unbiblical. But sometimes it's not about being unbiblical. It's just because it's different. The culture is a little bit different than us. But we're all part of one body. And we ought to be encouraging one another. And so we see that here. Let's look at verse 24. So it says, He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, which means that he actually continued to have an evangelistic ministry there. The men who were there initially from Cyprus and Cyrene were probably still there evangelizing. And so we're told here that additional numbers continue to be brought to the Lord. But look at what happens. Verse 25, it says, And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers... And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, why do you suppose he leaves Antioch? The text tells us specifically here that he does that. Twice in our passage, Luke tells us that the church at Antioch experienced exceptional growth. Verse 21 says, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24 says, considerable numbers, which probably means additional folks, were brought to the Lord. As a result, Barnabas needed some help So he went to Tarsus to find somebody. Why do you suppose he'd need help? I love the fact, again, we're talking about Barnabas here, who was an encourager. We're not really told anywhere that Barnabas was an evangelist. Now, remember, the Lord, we're told, assigns into the church, appoints into the church, those who are evangelists, prophets, teachers, people with helps, etc. The church is gifted with certain things. And there are some within the church that are specifically gifted as evangelists. I believe Paul was an evangelist. I believe Paul was also gifted in teaching. Okay, Kind of a dual role. He was a great evangelist, but he was also a tremendous mentor and disciple maker, if you will. What we see of Peter was that it appears he was primarily an evangelist. Philip is called an evangelist. Now, oftentimes what you find with evangelists is they go and they evangelize. Oftentimes what you find with with others that are given other gifts is they stay within those lanes as well. I have never been a great gifted evangelist. 
My, it seems that God has gifted me more as a mentor and a disciple maker and a teacher. Doesn't mean he doesn't use me to evangelize. Doesn't mean I don't try to evangelize. I know guys who could bring a rock to Christ. That's the way they've been gifted. I know one right now who, um, I think almost every time I talk to him, he has a story about somebody he either led to the Lord or somebody he had witnessed to. He is a gifted evangelist. Barnabas, it appears, was, was more um, a mentor, an encourager, a disciple maker. So here he is in Antioch. It's exploding with growth. And he's looking at all of these Christians and he's thinking, what do I do with these people? Ah, oh, I need some help. And so what he does is he actually goes to Tarsus, where Paul is. Why would he do that? Tarsus was certainly closer than Jerusalem, but he could have radioed back, if we can say it that way, to Jerusalem, get some of the teachers that were there, maybe some of the other, some of the other um, apostles, bring them down for help. In fact, that's where he was from. Why not do that? Why go to Tarsus? Well, it was closer. Maybe, maybe that's part of the reason. I don't believe that's the primary reason, though. Saul was there in Tarsus. Tarsus was very similar to Antioch, a lot smaller, but very similar in that it was primarily Gentiles. Barnabas also knew Paul's calling and commission from the Lord. He personally had talked with him. He knew that the Lord had made and assigned that Saul, who would become Paul, would be ministering not just to Jews, but would have a bigger ministry among Gentiles. He also knew Saul's background, a tremendous Old Testament scholar and teacher. And Paul, for a number of years now, had been off in Tarsus, likely evangelizing, teaching, So he goes and he gets the man he knows who can help him to now mentor and disciple these new believers. And one of the striking things about this is we're told that at Antioch, after a short period of time, they had prophets and teachers. Why do you suppose that is? Well, we're told here that he brings Saul back. Verse 26 tells us, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And look what they did. And for an entire year, they met with the church and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The reason he went and got Saul was because he needed somebody to come alongside him to now do something that's required, which is to make disciples. This is interesting to me because this is really the first time we see this in the book of Acts. Almost everything up until this point has been about evangelism. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't teaching and training the people that had gotten saved, but you notice most of the emphasis was just people coming to Christ. We weren't given much information behind what happened to these people when they came to Christ. But here we find that they actually go the next step and they stick around for a year, and they teach those who have been brought to the Lord. It's the first time we see that in the book of Acts. Again, it doesn't mean it wasn't happening, but we see a different side of it now. This reminds me of something Christ said. The Great Commission. We always think about the Great Commission in terms of evangelism. But notice what Jesus actually said. He said, go therefore 
and evangelize the world. Is that what your version says, Matthew 28? No, it says, go therefore and make disciples by baptizing and what? By teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the Great Commission. It's not evangelism. That's only the first step. Jesus isn't interested in just converts. He's interested in disciples who do what he taught us to do. And so what we find here is that Barnabas and Saul come back to Antioch where there are now considerable numbers, we're told, of brand new baby Gentile Christians. And for the next year, they teach, they mentor, they disciple. Now we begin to see why Antioch was the cradle of Christianity. They weren't just bringing people to Christ and moving on. They were making disciples. And we're going to see how that plays out here in just a second. I love the fact here, too, that Luke throws, on, throws in this little side note. It's actually pretty important, I think. Notice at the end of verse 26, he said, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now here's what's interesting to this. You may be familiar with the term Christian. We're oftentimes told that it means little Christs. I have no clue where that came from because it does not mean little Christs. Maybe some dude in the past, maybe some church father said that, I don't know. But that's not what the word means. It's a combination of two words, Christ, and then actually another, what's called adjectival ending, that means to adhere to or to belong to. If you stick those together, it means one belonging to Christ. Another way to translate that is it literally means Christ follower. It was used not just of Christians, but of others in Rome as well. Meaning you were a follower of something. Whether it be a trade or something else. You might have noticed that Luke doesn't say here, this is the first place that Christians started, or that disciples started calling themselves Christians. Did you catch that? He doesn't say that. He says, they were called Christians. Somebody else gave them that label. What's interesting in the New Testament is we see believers refer to themselves in a variety of ways. We see them call themselves disciples, believers, saints, brothers and sisters, followers of the way. But we don't see Christians calling themselves Christians in the New Testament. In fact, that label is only used three times. It's used here. It's used by King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 where he refers to believers as Christians. And then Peter happens to make a reference in 1 Peter chapter 4.16, but the reality of it is, it wasn't Christians that started saying, we're going to call ourselves Christians. They used a lot of other terms. So why is it important here that outsiders label them as Christians? It's because outsiders knew they were followers of Christ. That's their legacy. They saw these people, they saw these Jews, they saw these Gentiles, and immediately said, They follow Christ. That's a tremendous witness to have, is it not? They weren't just a follower of some new religion. They were followers of an individual, followers of a man named Jesus Christ. Boy, what a a neat thing to be known for. And to have the unsaved world tack that label on you. Wouldn't it be something... If all around our world today, 
when people saw Christians, they really, really, truly, and maybe instead of using that word, said, oh, those are the people that follow Jesus Christ. I don't think the world thinks of that today when they see the word Christian. It's just a word to them. But imagine if they said, oh no, that, that, that person, think about it in your own life. If you could be known for one thing, would it be the church you go to, or just the label Christian, whatever that means to these people, wouldn't you much rather be known as, well, that's a person who follows Jesus Christ. That's what they were known for. That tells us something about them. Because again, it wasn't having some... And remember, Rome was filled with different religions. Antioch was, was again, a seaport, a hub. People from all different religions trafficked through that port. And so they could have tacked the label onto Christians that was just about some new religion, but it was specifically a follower of Christ. I think that's important. I think that's our takeaway from this. Because, again, the Great Commission isn't simply about converts. Jesus isn't all that interested in converts. He's interested in disciples. And the fact that these people were called Christians suggests they were following Christ and his teachings. So again, it's not just about evangelism. That's not what Antioch was about. I think this is the most important part of this text. These people were followers of Christ and were known for it. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Barnabas and Saul stuck around for a year and taught them. Didn't just get them saved and walk away. That's where I think, in some respects, the American church has lost its way. I remember when the whole seeker-sensitive movement started back in the 70s and 80s. The emphasis was evangelism. How do we get people into our churches so that we can share the gospel from the pulpit? And so we attempted to try a number of marketing means and secular avenues and make them feel comfortable And the focus changed from teaching and training to evangelism. And so you have somebody like Bill Hybels, who after 20 years of doing that, was willing to admit when they studied his own church, wow, we've seen a number of people come to Christ, but we haven't made disciples. They're all still baby Christians after 20 years. They haven't grown. They haven't matured. And what happens when you have young baby Christians come to Christ and they're not made disciples, if you will, and they don't grow and mature? Do they do the work of a Christian? No, they don't. In fact, if anything, they still look like the old man instead of the new man that they're supposed to become. Is there any question that today's church in America doesn't produce disciples like we did just 30, 40 years ago? You can, you can look at the data, and that's what it suggests. Why is that? We shifted from making disciples, which included evangelism, to just purely evangelism. Just get people saved. Paul and Barnabas taught. It resulted in the term Christian coming out of Antioch, Christ follower. It's about making disciples. It's not just about getting people saved. We do both. But God forbid we hand over the church to just evangelism. 
That's where Christians are supposed to come to be, come disciples. Let's move on to the last section here. Let's look at verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for relief to the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. I look at this as kind of a reversal. If you remember the way that this all started, we get these Gentiles that ultimately um, are saved. And so the group in Jerusalem, the more mature group, I would say, sees this and decides to send Barnabas, their encourager, down to Antioch to now help them, to help them to um, be encouraged. And from that, we see Saul and, um, and Barnabas start mentoring and discipling these folks. So we have the Antioch church in need, and the Jerusalem church helps to meet that need by sending them the resources in Barnabas to help them out. But what do we see now in this passage? It's a bit reciprocal, is it not? Because now we see these Antioch believers who for a year now have been mentored, who have developed this reputation, they're told that now a famine is going to come in the whole region. We know that to be the case from history as well. But what do they do? It says, in proportion that any of them had means, they determined to send a contribution for relief of the brethren. Now, later on in the book of Acts, we find out that specifically the group Judea there, Judea is a broader term, but specifically they were looking at Jerusalem. Why it was maybe more difficult in Jerusalem, we don't really know. But they were sending a contribution by Saul and Barnabas, and they actually take that contribution and they bring it to the saints at Jerusalem. We find something very similar in Paul's letters where he talks about collecting, uh, collecting for the saints to take it to Jerusalem as well. So we have this reciprocal thing take place here. We find that the Jerusalem church ministered to the Antioch church. Now it's time for the Antioch church to return some of that, and they begin to minister back to the saints who are at Jerusalem. And what I find interesting about this is the famine was somewhat worldwide, meaning in the region at this time, which means it would have affected people in Antioch. But they gave anyway. Gave according to their needs. Paul mentions that also in one of his letters. That they gave above and beyond their own ability to be able to give. So what's the takeaway from that? One of the takeaways, I think, is that this is really the way the universal church is supposed to work. Um, One thing that kind of dismays me a little bit um, is when I see, and it's not real common, but you do see it, where churches in some respects compete with one another. You know? Um, How disheartening that is to me. You know, we're, we're part of one body of Christ, and what's good for one is good for all of us. But sometimes because of the way we do things, you know, we have budgets to support and other things, or, God forbid, we have popularity contests, you know. This mega church pastor wants to be known or wants his booked out, sell somebody else or whatever, and, I mean, they'll all say it doesn't exist, but it does. And we can see it. Um, 
I was just watching a video. There's a new documentary apparently coming out by the BBC regarding Hillsong Church. You might have seen some of that in the news recently. And um, apparently, Brian, what's his name? Is it Houston? Is that who his last name is? Yeah, Houston. Kind of the head of all this in the U.S. here. Um, is dismayed because he doesn't believe that they're portraying Hillsong accurately because it brings up a bunch of the issues with Hillsong. And so anyway, I watched a couple of videos related to that, and there was one of them, man. I, t- I just I scratched my head because it was some dude with a fedora on and a leather jacket and skinny pants. And he gets on there with his wife, and they're doing this promotional video. And um, he literally, I mean, they're prepping themselves and primping themselves, making themselves look good, you know, and all that. And he comes right out and he says, I'm wearing... The, something like, I'm, I'm wearing the official Hillsong garb. And then he says, I got my fedora, my leather coat, and my skinny pants on. And then his wife makes a comment about, and he's got that really great looking woman on his side, or something along that line. I'm thinking, it's just all like a giant gimmick. I'm sorry. You know? And, and it's all appealing to the world. And then he goes on to talk about how God has specifically equipped them to reach the world. Us. It's specifically us that got it. He wasn't talking in a sense of us in general, but no, there's something very special and unique that God has done with Hillsong specifically to make them the ones that are going to reach this generation. And my heart just sank as I, as I listened to that. I thought, oh, it just makes my skin crawl. You know? Now obviously... We should want everybody to succeed with their ministries. And, and, and I love the fact here that what we're looking at, because we're going to see how many in Jerusalem, some of the Jews, still struggled with what to do with the Gentiles. We're going to see that come up in a bit here. And there was a genuine struggle. Because you find on the one hand, they recognize what God is doing. They know God has offered an extended salvation to the Gentiles. But they don't quite know how that's supposed to fit because they've been raised to think we got to obey the law and there's this system in place and you know they're, they're, they're dirty and now they're not dirty and, and how, how do we manage all this? And so they're still sort of struggling with it. They're trying to get it to fit. But at the same token, even with that tension, we find this church in Antioch, these brand new Gentile believers, they've been matured and mentored for about a year And yet when they get wind of these Jews, because really it would have been primarily Jews back up in Jerusalem, their hearts go out to them. And they collect even out of their own need, because we know that the the famine hit them as well. They send that back. Why? Because that's the way the universal church is supposed to work. We are one body. We don't compete. We should encourage. We should strengthen. You know, it isn't just about us. We shouldn't just be thinking about our own needs and our own walls and our own buildings and our own budgets. And everything. We really ought to be thinking about what's good for the church as a whole. You know, my first church here in, here in Ohio, we got to the point where we had started with 13 people. We grew to about 50 or 60, but then we began to shrink. And part of that, um, we had a lot of trouble finding facility and places to meet in Grove City, there was just nothing. In fact, the last place we met was this house where the, we had kids' church in the kitchen, you know? And it just got to the point where it was hard, you know? We ended up taking that church then and just, it had shrunk quite a bit, and, and um, we decided, you know, it's just time to merge back in with our parent church. 
And that was kind of a hard decision because it felt like a failure in many respects. But we had to think about a perspective of, you know what, no, this is just, this is good for the church. It isn't about, well, we started this, we should finish it, you know. Um, and it was a good thing because most of the people stuck at that other church when we merged that in. They didn't go somewhere else, you know. They, they were a part of a good, solid church. And so it was a good thing that we did, but we had to think about it from the perspective of, no, this isn't about this small little church we started. This is ultimately about what's good for the body of Christ as a whole. And it was, and it was a good thing. That's the way the universal church is supposed to work. And so I love here that that's exactly what we see, this reciprocal thing. A small, brand new group of believers that needed some support and help, so this church here helped them out. And then when things kind of reversed, if you will, this church now needs some help. They pitched in and did just, that's the way the universal church works. And again, it's in the midst of the tension that they face, which is interesting. I'm sure there were some Gentiles who thought, why would we do that? The Jews have always hated us. Didn't seem to enter their minds. So, I love this passage today because again, what it helps us to understand is God's and God's original plan from the very beginning was that Gentiles would be a part of the church. And they would be just as important as the Jews. In fact, in many respects, you might say become a little bit more important because most of the church is made up of Gentiles. And it all sort of began back here in Antioch where God's plan could be seen coming together. And we see that it wasn't just about evangelism. It's about mentorship and disciple making. But it's also about the body of Christ functioning as just that. One large body made up of small, independent, local churches that all serve the needs of the body as a whole, not just their own individual needs and compete and who can do this or who can do that the best or whatever. It's kind of a neat picture. And so as we go through the rest of this, we'll kind of see how the, even how some of this tension plays out a little bit on the whole Gentile-Jew thing, but we see how God will continue to grow, especially the Gentile church, to ultimately do what he promised.